Let's pray, and uh, we'll get back into the Word of God. Lord, uh, Snowden Baptist is a church that uh, evidences and manifests its worship in so many different ways and facets, uh, whether here on Sunday or through the week at the workplace, at school, wherever. Lord, thank you for uh, assembling your body in this neighborhood, a worshipful body of believers. And Lord, part of that worship, of course, is giving uh, financially. And, and we thank you, Lord, for your generosity uh, that is shown through the people of this church in the, in the faithful, generous ways that they give. Uh, we're so thankful, Lord, to you for providing in that way. And Father, thank you, especially during this season, for the generosity that you have shown in giving your son to those who were your enemies, those who were weak, but at the right time, at your time, Lord, you sent into this world your son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, to live amongst us, to be crucified, to be risen, ascended, and soon coming again. Lord, we are so thankful and as we open your word again, Lord, to look into the things in Matthew chapter 1 that you have inspired, uh, we pray your help. Uh, we pray that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified today, that Christ would shine through this genealogy and through this uh, page of scripture. So come, Lord, be our helper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Christians, we are people who understand that our faith is actually embedded in a long history, a history that actually predates each and every one of us by thousands of years. As Christians, we understand that there is a wealth, isn't there, a wealth of important wisdom to be gleaned from the generations of the faithful that lived before us. As Christians, we resist what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery, where a person concludes that the current generation is somehow wiser than those generations who went before. We resist that. Humbly, we admit that there is certainly much for us to learn. There is much for us to be corrected on. There are many biases that we have uh, that need to be challenged, all of which can happen if we give a close, humble attention to our history. This year's Advent sermon series is a meditation on our history. Matthew's genealogy is our story, the story of our faith family. And although on the surface, it's just a long list of names, uh, we've been seeing, hopefully, how this genealogy teaches us very important lessons. Lessons about human unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. Lessons about the kinds of people that God uses, and he does use a number of kinds of people, to accomplish his great purposes. Now, one of the preeminent moments in our history as God's people was the moment of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile happened to our spiritual ancestors about 2,600 years ago. 
This was the time when mighty Babylon, the superpower nation of the time, when they invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, removed many people from the land, deported them to Babylon. And the line of kings in Judah, the lineage in David's, uh, in David's lineage of kings, ceased. And all of it because of Israel's long pattern of transgression and rebellion against the Lord. But as bad as all the destruction was, and as bad as the, all the human heartache was at that moment of exile, perhaps worse for the people was God's departure from the temple. His departure from the temple. God's glorious presence had filled the temple at the time when Solomon had first dedicated the temple, but at the time of the exile, God's glory departed from the temple, and the departure of God's glory from the temple is described in Ezekiel chapter 9 through 11. His glory went from the temple up to the Mount of Olives, to the east of Jerusalem, where there would be a clear sight of the ravaging and the destruction of the holy city. The third and final section of Matthew's genealogy begins at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Matthew 1.12 begins with the words, and after the deportation to Babylon. So we're right at the time here when the people were exiled to Babylon, the time when God's glory departed from the temple, the time when all of God's promises to Abraham and to David suddenly were thrown into great disarray. With Israel now evicted out of its land, and with no Davidic king on the throne of Israel, how could it be that God's promises would be fulfilled? Now, interestingly enough, verse 12 brings us from that time of the deportation all the way up to the time when God's people returned to their land. Watch this. Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiachin, who we met last week, if you were here. Again, that quiz is coming, so just make sure you're taking notes. Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, is the king who was captured in the Babylonian invasion and taken to Babylon in shackles, imprisoned in Babylon, and then released after 36 years, suddenly, and given a place at the Babylonian royal table. We said last week, Jehoiachin is that little burning ember in the line of David. And Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Now with Zerubbabel, we are at the time of the return to the land of Babylon. Now Zerubbabel is a, is a biblical character who we know more about than his father Shealtiel. But there's a problem 
at least on the surface of things, there's a problem. When Matthew says that Shealtiel is Zerubbabel's dad, because it, over in uh, 1 Chronicles 3.19, Zerubbabel's dad is not Shealtiel, but rather Zerubbabel's dad is Padiah. Who is Padiah? He's the brother of Shealtiel. And so the question becomes, will the real father of Zerubbabel please stand up? Uh, was Zerubbabel's father Shealtiel, or was his father Shealtiel's brother Padiah? Here's how we solve this, this issue very quickly. Most likely what happened was that Shealtiel was a married man, but he and his wife did not bear a son. So that when Shealtiel died without having a son, his brother Padiah, in keeping with Israelite uh, leveret marriage law that we looked at when we were in the book of Ruth a little bit, in keeping with that law, Padiah took Shealtiel's widow to be his wife, and they bore a son named Zerubbabel, meaning that dead Shealtiel's lineage would continue. That was the idea of leveret marriage. So Padiah is then the biological father of Zerubbabel, while Shealtiel is legally his father. It's important that we see this because this issue of legal fatherhood will come up again before we're done today. So Matthew is correct in calling Shealtiel Zerubbabel's father, and the writer of Chronicles is correct in calling Padiah Zerubbabel's father. But regardless, the important thing for us here is that clearly, especially as we look at the first Chronicles uh, uh, genealogy, clearly Zerubbabel comes in the lineage of David. He descends from David. Now, Israel's prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel especially, had promised a return, a return to the promised land after the long night of exile in Babylon. And what happened? Well, in 539 BC, King Cyrus of Persia trounced Babylon, and then he decreed that those Jews who had been exiled in Babylon could now return to their homeland. As Zerubbabel, in the lineage of David, led a party of Jewish people out of Babylon back toward the promised land, that return that God had promised through his prophets was now beginning to come true. It was like a new exodus out of Egypt. And Isaiah in particular had pictured the return from Babylon in that exact sort of way. When Israel returned from the exile, it would be like a new exodus. Zerubbabel had been appointed governor, and Zerubbabel's task was to reconstruct the temple. And the reconstruction efforts were hindered very greatly by a group of enemies who opposed the work, but with the encouragements of God, with the encouragements of God that came through his prophets Haggai and Zechariah, 
Zerubbabel obediently took up the work again with his people, and a second temple was completed in the year 515 B.C. Now, we can imagine that those who had returned to the land uh, probably were looking at Zerubbabel, descendant of David, this descendant of David who had been appointed governor, Zerubbabel, who had led the efforts in rebuilding the temple, no small thing, Zerubbabel, whom God had called his chosen one and his signet ring in Haggai 2.23, the people probably looked at Zerubbabel and got very excited about the prospect of an imminent return of a king in the line of David in the land on the throne. But it was not to be, for now. After the second temple gets built, Zerubbabel effectively disappears without a trace from the story. And we should mention here that as far as the second temple itself, we have no record of God's glory filling that temple, as had been the case with Solomon's temple. Now, in our genealogy, we come to verses 13 through 15, and here in these verses, an enormous amount of time is covered. Uh, More or less 500 years is covered in these verses, but the people that are named in this part of the genealogy are unknown to us. The Bible gives us no information on Abiud and Eliakim and Azor, and Zadok, and Achim, and Eliud, Eleazar, and Matan, and Jacob. Jose did great with those names. I hope that I'm doing okay with these. Uh, we, We have no record of these people other than what's given here in Matthew, but again, we need to understand 500 years or so is represented here in these verses. 500 years pass between Zerubbabel and Joseph, father of Jesus, whose name will be given in verse 16. And so we ask the question, what went on in these 500 years? What was happening in all these many years that elapsed in between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, I'm going to give you more history. (laughs) So, And this is, again, important because it's the history that led to your salvation and that led to my salvation. So here it is, very quickly, whirlwind tour of 500 years of history. After the Persians had defeated the Babylonians, the Persian people then ruled over the Promised Land for uh, just over 200 years. Then in 332 B.C., Greek armies, under the leadership of Alexander the Great, defeated the Persians, and now Israel came under Greek rule. Now, very importantly, from this point forward, a process called Hellenization. Hellenization began, which was the spreading of Greek culture and Greek language, Greek dress, Greek customs, Greek innovations, Greek philosophy. Alexander the Great was a pretty smart guy. 
He strategically built Greek cities across his, his entire empire, and these cities acted as kind of like engines spread out all over the place to spread Greek culture far and wide. Alexander dies in 323 BC, and his empire is then split up between his generals. And in particular, two of those generals, a man named Ptolemy and another man named Seleucus, came into conflict. General Ptolemy and the Ptolemaics controlled the Promised Land. They also controlled Egypt. And General Seleucus controlled Syria and the East. And these two kingdoms were constantly at war with one another, with Israel's promised land being a battleground throughout all of the incessant fighting. Well, it was during this time that in order to finance all of the constant warring and battling, Jewish people were now forced to pay outlandish taxes, and there emerged tax farmers in the land, otherwise known in our Bibles as tax collectors, publicans. These were people who, a lot of them were Jewish, and they worked with the Roman government, or with the Greek government at the time, so they weren't particularly, people weren't fond of them. Well, eventually then, in 198 BC, uh, the Seleucid ruler uh, defeated the Ptolemaic ruler. The land of Israel now falls under Seleucid control. And there arose in the land a ruler named Antiochus IV. I have a little thumbs down on the screen there. Antiochus IV had an unchecked, colossal ego. He imposed Greek culture everywhere in the empire, and any opposition to it was suppressed. Antiochus's policy was enforced Hellenization, the enforced imposition of all things Greek. Antiochus was a serious persecutor of the Jewish people. Among other things, he had copies of the Torah destroyed. He forbade circumcision and Jewish sacrifices. He banned the observance of Jewish holy days. He forced Jewish people to make offerings and worship pagan gods. And then in an ultimate act of blasphemy against Israel's God, Antiochus constructed an altar to Zeus. Where? Inside the Jerusalem temple. And he commanded that pigs should be sacrificed on that altar. And it was that action that proved to be the final straw for many. And in 166 BC, an elderly Jewish priest named Mattathias, together with his sons, led a revolution against Antiochus. One of those sons, a man named Judah Maccabee, emerged as the military hero, the Jewish force under him experienced great success, and finally in 164 BC, a peace agreement was struck, ending the Greek persecution, and the temple was cleansed. And to this day, the Jewish holiday, Hanukkah, 
is a celebration of that historical moment when the temple was cleansed. Well, it wouldn't be long before Judea became an independent state again, at least temporarily they did, under the leadership of this particular Jewish family. But these leaders made mistakes. First of all, these leaders took to themselves the role of both king and high priest, an action that upset many of the Jewish people. And secondly, these leaders also began to gravitate increasingly away from Judaism over toward Greek ideals, toward Hellenism. And part of the reaction of uh, the reaction to that drift toward Hellenism was the emergence of a group you may be familiar with, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a new group who were concerned, very concerned with keeping Torah, with keeping God's law. They wanted to separate themselves from that drift toward Greek ideals that they were seeing in their leadership. After all, they argued, hadn't the exile resulted from a neglect of God's law. And didn't the prophets of old prosecute Israel for its failure to keep the law? The Pharisees wanted Israel to return to law-keeping, and the Pharisees proved to be quite popular with the workaday people in the land. They were quite popular. In contrast to that were the Sadducees, a group who leaned heavily toward Greek ideals and who were cultural elites with lots of money and lots of power, not as popular with the commoners as the Pharisees were. Well, fast forward now. We're almost through this historical section. Fast forward to 63 BC when the Roman general Pompey conquers Jerusalem. Now the promised land comes under Roman rulership, and in 37 BC, getting very close to the time when Jesus is born, 37 BC, Rome appoints Herod the Great as king of the Jews. Herod the Great is half Jewish, and he sympathizes with Rome, and he loves Greek ideals, and he is looked upon by the Jewish population as suspect and especially looked upon that way by the Pharisees. Herod the Great is also ruthless. He had one of his wives and three of his sons executed. And of course, when Jesus is born, this Herod, we remember Herod the Great, plays the maniac and tries to kill Jesus, just like Pharaoh had tried to do at the time of the Exodus with the Hebrew babies. All of this, friends, leads us right back to our genealogy, to Matthew 1.16. In the time of Herod the Great, Joseph, the husband of Mary, is alive. Joseph, in the bloodline of who? Of David. Now, notice something very carefully in this verse. We need to notice this. Notice that suddenly... After instance upon instance of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, now we have 
the pattern changing suddenly. So instead of Joseph, the father of Jesus, Matthew says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Why the sudden noteworthy change in the pattern? Well, the reason, of course, is that Jesus, listen, is not the physical biological son of Joseph. Jesus is the physical biological son of Mary, who was with child through the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. Jesus is the legal son of Joseph, which means that Jesus still indeed is the legal descendant of David, and the heir according to the promises of Abraham. Jesus is called Christ in verse 16, and he is also called Christ back in verse 1, the first verse of the New Testament. Christ means Messiah. Christ means anointed one, the promised king who would come in the line of David. And just to make very sure that we don't miss the significance of Jesus being the new anointed king in the line of David, Matthew hammers home the point in verse 17, drawing specific attention to the three groups of 14 that we talked about in the first sermon. So all the generations from Abraham to David, so group one of the genealogy, were how many generations? 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, group two of the genealogy, 14 generations, and group three, from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, also 14 generations. So three groups of 14 generations apiece matching the numerical value in Hebrew of the name David, which is 14 and David's name appears in the entire genealogy in the 14th place. David is important here, and the link between David and Jesus. Now, I want us to notice something about this third section of the genealogy that was pointed out to me by Bruno Compton McFadden in their recent book. So notice that at the start of the section, so verse 12, Matthew says, after the deportation to Babylon. And then what does he do? He goes on with this list of names leading up all the way to Jesus. What is meant by Matthew's specific mention of the deportation? He doesn't use the word exile here. He uses the word deportation. What is meant? Well, what is meant is the time when Israel went to Babylon. When they went. The deportation, that word refers to the start of the exile. When they went into Babylon. But Matthew nowhere gives us the word return or end of the exile. He just gives us the beginning of the exile with his word deportation and then lists all these names. Now, we as readers, we've already seen, we know that the name Zerubbabel, that signals the end of the exile and the return. 
uh, Zerubbabel leading a group of returnees from Babylon back to the promised land. But again, Matthew only explicitly mentions the beginning of the exile with that word deportation. He does not explicitly mention the end of the exile, almost as if to say the exile really continued from the time of the deportation all the way up to the birth of Jesus Christ. In other words, even when the people had returned to the land and had rebuilt the temple, the exile was technically not over. Listen, remember how we said earlier that perhaps the biggest tragedy of the whole exile was God's departure from Solomon's temple, pictured in Ezekiel 9 through 11? Well, even as the people returned and they rebuilt the temple, now the second temple, God's glory, very important to see, did not return to that building. And that in and of itself, is a huge clue that the exile was not technically over when the people returned to the land. Jesus is born. Jesus is the legal descendant of David. Jesus is royal. Matthew's genealogy establishes that. Then, over in John's gospel, we have some absolutely astonishing declarations about who this Jesus is. John says, in the very first verse of his gospel, that, listen, the word was God, okay? The word was God, and then John says in verse 14, the word, God, became flesh, and what? Tabernacled is the Greek word here. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen his what? Glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John links the tabernacle, he tabernacled amongst us, he links the tabernacle, the place of God's presence on earth, he links that with the fleshly Jesus. And in the very same breath, John mentions being a witness to God's glory that evidenced itself in the person of Jesus. Tabernacle and glory. Temple and glory. The glory has come back full volume in the temple who is now Jesus himself. God come in glory in the flesh, and in John chapter 2, the very next chapter of John's gospel, Jesus will make it crystal clear that indeed he is 
God's temple. Jesus is the place of God's presence on the earth. (laughs) He's the place of God's presence on the earth. The glory of the temple has come back. The exile is over. Messiah, Jesus, God in the flesh, the place of God's presence, the son of David, is here. Amen? (laughs) It's Christmas. Now, at the moment when, the moment of history when Mary, she's in labor pains, she's giving birth to Jesus, at that moment in history, there was no uniform expectation as to the nature of the Messiah. No uniform expectation of who the Messiah would be. For example, although some emphasized that the Messiah, when he came, would indeed be a royal figure in the lineage of David, others argued for a more military-styled figure who would come and wage victorious war over the Roman occupiers and then reign in righteousness. At last, freeing Israel from all those long centuries of foreign occupation. Still others contended that there would be two messiahs coming. One would be royal in the line of David, and the other would be priestly in the lineage of Aaron. Still others emphasized that the Messiah, when he came, would have a prophetic focus. So there were these varying expectations, even as Mary is going into labor, varying expectations about who the Messiah or Messiahs would be. When Jesus, the Christ, comes, he sets the record straight. When Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, in Matthew 16, 16, Jesus blesses Peter for that confession. But then verse 21 of that same chapter has Jesus making sure, making very sure that his disciples know that this Christ will be a suffering Christ. Not many had expected the Christ, the Messiah, to be a suffering Christ. But Jesus makes it clear on a great number of occasions that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the one who will suffer the cross for the sake of sinners, amen, our salvation, on behalf of sinners, on behalf of you, my friend, and on behalf of me. Mary went through labor pains in order to birth the Christ who would be nailed to the cross to forgive and save sinners. Forget two messiahs or even three. In Jesus, who do we have? We have the single Christ of God, the only Christ of God, and all at the same time, friends, mind-blowing. All at the same time, he is the new temple beaming with the glory of God. He is the new and greater David. He is the new obedient Israel doing what Israel should have done but failed to do. He's the new obedient Israel, defeats the temptations in the wilderness when Israel had failed, for example. The new obedient Israel. He is the fulfiller of the promises to Abraham. He is the prophet 
far greater than Moses, who leads his people not on an exodus out of, G- out of Egypt, but on an exodus from the shackles of sin. Jesus is the high priest in the order of, not Aaron, and in the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus is also not only a priest, but he's the once-for-all acceptable, efficacious sacrifice who himself administers the sacrifice. That's our Jesus. He is the king of kings. He is wiser than Solomon. He is so exceedingly zealous for the Lord that he puts Josiah in the shade. Jesus is the last Adam who comes and undoes the first Adam's curse and says from his heart in genuine piety what Adam could never have said. Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus is the suffering servant who suffers the exile and exodus of the cross on behalf of his people only to return from the grave three days later, a sign greater than Jonah, three days later as the first fruits of God's new creation to be exalted then to the right hand of the Father where he reigns with all authority over you, over me, over every government, over every part of heaven. Jesus is the one in whom we hide with our filthy rags of unrighteousness. It is his shed blood on the cross and his righteousness, his righteousness, his righteousness that is imputed to us when we believe that clothes us and makes us acceptable to God. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. My friends, God orchestrated the history that brought the Christ into our world. God orchestrated the history, the long history, that brought you into this world. Praise God if already in your brief life you have met King Jesus and received him as your Savior and your Lord and your King Many of us have, and we love him, we adore him, and we are serving him and enjoying his beauty. But if you're a person listening today who has not yet received Jesus and believed in him and his atoning work, today is the day. Today is the day. John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be Saved through him. Be saved today, my friend. Romans 10, 9. 
Here's how you do that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, say it with me if you know it, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you bow with your life to the irresistible call of the king today? Open your empty hands and receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we understand ourselves as the picture that comes to mind, Lord, is a people who get on the train at a certain stop and get off that train at another stop when we die. But before we ever got on the train, there were throngs and thousands of people on it. And after we die, unless you come back, Lord, there will be thousands more. Father, we are part of a history. We are part of the history that you have inspired in this first chapter of Matthew. And we are grateful, Lord, for your word. We're grateful for the story. We're grateful for your sovereignty and how you have orchestrated this story and continue to orchestrate it. It's not over yet. And Lord God, we thank you for the promises we have of a new earth and a new heaven and a new earth, Lord, and the fact that you will be walking physically with us when we are raised one day uh, eternally. We praise you, Lord, for creating us, for giving us hope, for calling us to yourself. And I pray, Lord, for each and every person today walking through this Christmas season that we would just rejoice increasingly, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through and walking through, Lord, that you would be on the tip of our tongue and in our hearts and that we would sense and experience the joy, the joy of Jesus during this time. I pray this for everyone listening. In Jesus' name, amen.